0: I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Kaurna people, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. COVID-19, climate change, renewable energies, we have to make tough decisions every day, and it isn't always easy. No matter how much evidence we have, we need to put thought into the actual thought process of critical decision-making. Forget the complexity of science. How exactly do we make thoughtful, critical decisions that could affect our lives? Today, Cosmos journalist Dr. Deborah Devis talks to Professor Steve Begg from the University of Adelaide. He is an expert in decision-making under uncertainty, asset and portfolio economic evaluations and psychological and judgmental factors that impact these, particularly eliciting expert opinion and uncertainty assessment.
1: So Steve, tell me why critical thinking and critical decision-making especially is so important.
2: Um, I think the first point is that people often don't make decisions in a way that's most likely to deliver what they actually want. Yeah, I feel like
1: enough (laughs) fit.
2: Yeah, they don't want to think they've never actually been taught about it. They often go with emotion, um, gut feel, and sort of simple rules of thumb. And a lot of experiments, um, psychological experiments, have shown that those ways of decision making are not actually the best. Um, Mm. They often lead people to make choices that um, are not really in their best interest. decision-making as I uh, use it never tells people what they should want so this is not about trying to persuade people to do something it's helping people to understand what they really want and to choose the option that's most likely to deliver what they want and that's where they go wrong which is rather sad in a way they think they're doing the thing that will bring them what they want but it doesn't turn out to be so
1: why why does that happen
2: Um, because when we use rules of thumb and emotion and gut feel, um, we often make wrong conclusions about the world. We're not really thinking straight about what we can do, what might happen, what the best thing is. Um, so it's the way the brain, the brain is trained to be pretty lazy in a way, not to think critically and carefully about things. And that often leads us to jump to the wrong conclusion as to what might be best.
1: Which is interesting as well, because from the perspective of a scientist, at least, we do have to put a lot of effort into making sure that the decisions that we make are objective. We've got a whole bunch of vaccines. Do we want to take a vaccine? Do we want to make actions about climate change? All of these things. But it's very hard to separate the gut feeling from those those logical decisions. So how do you even know in the first place what you want and how to follow that path along?
2: Um, well, that's one of the things a good facilitator does is to help uh, a person or a group figure out what it really is that they want. Quite often, what people think they want, you know, on the surface is not what they actually want. Um, people often think, um, I want money. OK, well, they don't just want money. They want the reasons that money brings things. And then you sort of delve down and what is it? Why, why are you dissatisfied about your life or your relationships and things like that? And. Helping somebody figure out what it is they really want um, is part of the the technique of making good decisions.
1: And if we're looking at that, we're diving into finding out what people want. That sounds quite different from your background. So where did you come from and how did you get into trying to help people make better decisions?
2: Um, Well, I'm a geologist come geophysicist originally. Um, I studied earthquakes and I was always interested in risk and uncertainty about where and when earthquakes will come. And when I was young and naive, I thought, you know, I'd help save the world by um, helping to predict earthquakes. (laughs) And then I sort of realised that you can never actually do that. They're uncontrollable. All you can do is predict the chance that they might happen. And so it's much better to actually plan around how to respond rather than to predict. And this, I think, is a mistake that a lot of people make today. They want a perfect prediction um, to be able to make a decision instead of to think about the possible things that might happen and plan a lot of contingencies around for if they don't actually happen. So that stuff around earthquakes led me into um, dealing with uh, uncertainty about the subsurface of the Earth, the geology, and then some, in, that led me into risk and uncertainty associated with engineering, engineering, That led me into risk and uncertainty with uh, economics. And eventually that led to decision-making. And when I was around 40, um, I discovered there was actually a right and a wrong way, actually many wrong ways to make decisions. And I was pretty disappointed that earlier in my life that nobody had actually told me about these better ways or good ways to make decisions that are based on, you know, logical reasoning, things like that. Um, But why, why wasn't I told about this? You know, maybe I've spent half my life because the way that we naturally make decisions is generally not consistent with um, a, a good way. And likewise, um, our preferred style, I'm lazy, my preferred style would be gut, gut feel and, and emotion. But in the same way that our preferred way of learning things is not always the best way for us to learn something, our preferred way of making decisions is not always the best way for us to make decisions.
1: And you said that you had trouble figuring out why you didn't learn this so early on in life. And look, it's really hard. I don't even know if I make good decisions now. As you said, that gut feeling is still there. So stepping back into those childhood boots, can we teach kids how to make these good decisions?
2: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think the the ideas are fairly simple. They're just not natural and they're not taught. That's the crazy thing to me is that they're not um, taught. So maybe five or six years ago, I was talking to a group of teachers um, who were involved in the uh, research project that's done. A, I can't remember whether it's year 11 or 12, but it's the research project. And one of those teachers uh, remembered that talk and came back to me about six months ago and asked if I'd be willing to um, take a group of students from poor schools and teach them some decision making on a couple of half day workshops. And I said, sure, yeah. And then she told me, well, they're actually year sixes and sevens, so 11 and 12-year-olds, not year 11 and year 12. And it took me a while to think about that and think, would this actually work? And the teachers knew enough about it. I you know, got a lot of help from four really good teachers from four schools in Adelaide. And we decided the concepts were simple enough, but it took a lot of work to turn it out of the technical decision-making language into language and examples that they would engage with. But yes, it is, it is quite possible to do. And that's what makes it even worse, is this is not actually a hard thing. Why are we not taught this? I mean, we're taught about heaps of maths and maths formulas, and I'm a big fan of maths, don't get this wrong, uh, and rational thinking. But often they seem abstract and not useful. And why aren't we taught about probably the most useful thing in life is how do we make decisions to get more of what we want? Because that's the only thing we can control. The rest of the outcomes of our decisions are based on things we can't control. Other people's decisions, nature, all of those sorts of things. So the only thing we can control to improve the quality of our lives is what we do. And yet we're not taught the best way of that. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit worked no. up here, but you know, it's, it's quite frustrating. But it,
1: it is like, that's so important, especially because we, as you said, we learn mathematical concepts, we learn problem solving, but problem solving does not guarantee that you're going to make a good decision to get the outcome you want.
0: Yeah,
1: That's very different. So what was your experience yeah. with the 11 year olds?
2: Um, they actually bought into this much more easily than adults because they hadn't mm-hmm. been preconditioned to think that, I have to make the best prediction and remove all of the uncertainty to make a good decision. And they were quite um, happy with the idea that the only thing they can control is the decision. You can't actually control the outcome. So a good decision doesn't guarantee that you're going to get a good outcome. It's just the best you can do to maximise your chances of getting what you want. And vice versa, you can actually make a bad decision and get a lucky good outcome but the danger of that is it's not repeatable. And so if you use that decision, make, use the outcome and think, oh, that, i got a good outcome from that. I'll do this decision-making again. You could actually be doing the wrong thing because that outcome could have been pure luck. And likewise, your good decision can end up with a bad outcome because you can't control it. So separating out the goodness and badness of the decision from the goodness and badness of the outcome is a real problem people at university and business have and these school kids didn't seem to have a problem with that.
1: Mm, because I suppose we, we often base our analysis of whether we've made a good decision on a good outcome. Yeah. And that is hard to separate.
2: Yes. And that's why um, in decision making, we figure out what a good decision is without needing to know the outcome. So we've got a series of metrics that we can assess and say, is this a good or a bad decision before we actually know the outcome, which is great.
1: What kind of metrics are they?
2: Um, it's really there are um, six, um, uh, I guess we call them dimensions or links that go to make up a good decision. The first one is, are you really clear about what it is that you're deciding about? A um, good example was um, uh, a very well-known decision maker who was thinking about um, should he, well, his son had left um, home and he was thinking about should he do up the back bedroom as an office for the family? And he was talking with the wife about that. And then he decided, well, this isn't really about whether we should do up this office or this bedroom as an office. It's about we're sort of getting older. Where You know, do we want to change house? Is this the appropriate house? And then that led to discussion about, well, where do we actually want to retire? So the decision you start with is often not the one that's the really key one. So that's the first thing is knowing what's really important to decide. Then knowing um, what you really want, because you only start from what you want, not what other people tell you you should want, what your peers, your friends, your family, you may not get what you want, but you should at least start with what you really want and what's in your head, even if it runs counter to what everybody is telling you you should want. Knowing what you want, knowing what's most important to you, then generating some options that are likely to deliver, but not judging those options to begin with then collecting information about how those alternatives might deliver what you want and thinking logically about that and finally committing to it. Those are the basic steps, which, you know, there's a series of tools and techniques for helping you go through all of those steps, but that's the key part of it.
1: And even though they sound quite simple, I would imagine that when you're trying to uh, look at the different options judgment-free, that's when your gut kicks in and has yes. put the bias on it
2: yeah so wait you you, you separate out the um, the coming up with the options and the information and then you do have to come up with a judgment as to your preferences what do i prefer this sort of outcome versus that outcome and the risk of this one and the risk of that one so that is a, a qualitative judgment and it is your judgment it's what's important to you maybe different for different people so you just this, the technique for make, making these sort of difficult, complicated, awkward decisions breaks them up into a series of these sort of six or seven little steps that are themselves quite easy to do. You just have to be disciplined in your thinking about it and not leap forward to looking at an option and thinking, oh, that's a really good one, before collecting, I guess it's unbiased information. We need to be unbiased in our information collection about how an option might deliver what we want and we need to be unbiased in our thinking. And if we are biased, what that tends to do is lead us to a preference, a preferred option, that is not actually the best one. So bias is the real killer to getting the outcomes that we want.
1: And can those biases uh, affect those first few steps where we're deciding what we want?
2: Um, Yeah, so the the biases tend to affect more the thinking, the reasoning and the information. Uh, The emotion affects those first steps of what we want. And uh, I guess you could call that a bias also because thinking what you want is sometimes not what you want. So that you could call a type of bias. But it's it's a lack of really looking into ourselves and it's removing assumptions that if I choose A, it will lead to B. You know, the real thing I want is B. Let's forget for a while whether I should do, you know, A, B, C or D, but I should be clear about what it is that I want. And that takes, that's actually sometimes easier to do with a person who knows you really well and asks you, you know, are you sure about that, Steve? Um, the, we have a little acronym in decision-making called WITI, W-I-T-I, um, where you stands for why is that important? And you just keep asking yourself, why is that important? Why is that important? You come up with an answer or you get somebody else to ask you, why is that important? And eventually you just get frustrated and say, well, because it is important. Ah, that's when you've discovered what you really want.
1: Oh, that, that sounds so simple and also really frustrating, (laughs) Yes, but it's something to implement. And I think it's really interesting hearing you talk about how you went from geology, which a lot of people see as this like hardcore science into decision-making, because that seems like it's crossing, crossing these boundaries. It's intersectional. It's got a lot of philosophy in it, but that is so essential for then applying back to science. You have to have that philosophical look at it. So are we missing that sometimes in science? Are we missing that philosophy of decision-making?
2: Um, I think the danger for a lot of scientists and the reason that, you know, maybe science has been undermined a bit is scientists mix objectives and what they want versus their analysis of it. And because they're driven by a particular goal, it can sometimes lead them to distort their science, to try to persuade people. And one of the key things about decision-making is you're not trying to persuade. In fact, what you're trying to do is protect people from being manipulated or persuaded by other people who want them to make a decision in their interest, not yours. People who want to sell you something. Could be sell you a product, sell you an idea, um, sell you a service, sell you a belief. And you really need to keep those two things separate. And I think science needs to do that. It needs to keep separate it's analysis of the information from how we as individuals would like that information to be used to achieve some goal, because different people might have different goals. And the other thing with my risk and uncertainty background is scientists seem these days to me um, to want to minimize the uncertainty and what they're saying to again, to persuade people. And the honest truth is we often don't know what the world is like and If we don't know, that leads to a different sort of decision-making. It leads you to a decision-making where you keep options open instead of plunking for one thing. If you're absolutely sure about how the world will behave, you go for one thing and stick with it. But if you're wrong, you're stuffed, and you've actually spent a lot of time and resources. So you could apply that to climate change, for example. If we're honest about the uncertainty in models we might decide that we need to take stepwise approaches with multiple options, see how the world is actually turning out and then focus on the options that are best for that as opposed to a single route to achieve what, what we want.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as you said, with climate change and a lot of other things, we almost never actually can be 100% certain. So those decisions are feeding into that, helping no. run our country quite well.
2: I think so. And I think... This is where, in some, to some extent, scientists have let us down because I think they don't want to come across as uncertain. But the problem is, if you have one scientist saying A and another scientist saying B, you don't even know to know what the outcome is, but the public can look at that and say, one of you must be wrong. Why should I believe you? So I, I, it's in some ways, it's a bit counterintuitive, but I think science needs to be really clear about its uncertainties and honest about those, both for its credibility and because the level of uncertainty dictates the sorts of decisions we might make. And if you've got false certainty, you might make the wrong decision.
1: Which also, I think, is one of the dangers of separating philosophy and the other humanities from science. Without that, it's very hard to make sure that we are maintaining that semblance of, yeah, there is uncertainty and that that's okay, Um, And these are some options that we might bring to it instead.
2: Yeah. Coming back to this, you know, one of the elements of decision making, um, your objectives, what you want are your values. And people often mix up their values with your beliefs. So values are something that are personal to you and they're not right or wrong. You can't prove them. They're not objective. It's just personally, I prefer red wine to white wine. Okay, nobody can prove that's right or wrong or say it's good or it's bad. It's just reality. That's different from whether I believe, you know, a bottle of wine in a brown paper bag is red or white. So we need to separate out what we want to be true from what we believe to be true. And that also then relates to preferences and biases. So biases relate to having uh, effectively false or erroneous or systematically wrong beliefs. That's a bias. On the other hand, a preference is preferring red to white, preferring more money to less money, preferring, I don't know, um, the environment over profit. But those, you can't prove those are right or wrong. They're just what people prefer. And so we really need to separate what we value and what our preferences within the multiple options are versus from what our beliefs are and make sure we're unbiased. And it's absolutely crucial for decision-making if you want to get the things, your, your values achieved, to be unbiased in your beliefs, in your data, in your thinking.
1: So from a personal point of view then, if we're trying to separate them, how, how do we know which is which?
2: Um, you, you use this test. Um, a belief is something, uh, a statement about the world or how the world will be that is ultimately actually true or false. If you've got enough information, you would know your belief is true or your belief is false. The earth is flat, the earth is round. So we can argue about these for a long time. We can get data, we can get evidence, etc. Values are coming back to just what you think is important to you. So there's no rightness or wrongness with them. We may disagree with other people's values, but I can't prove that killing people is... Um, a good or a bad thing. I disagree with it. It's my value is you don't do that. Um, but it's not something that's provable. It's just a viewpoint on what's good and what's bad. So you separate into what you like, what you dislike from what you believe and disbelieve. Mm. That's, it takes, it, it, it's a... To begin with, it's a subtle difference because people think values and beliefs are the same thing. But as you delve into it, you see they're actually quite different things. Beliefs are associated with information, models, that sort of stuff. Values are associated with desire, what we think is relatively what we think is good and what we think is bad, desirable, undesirable. And so uh, that clears it up.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. I think it's very interesting because we talk about those two words so interchangeably. And so language reinforces that they're the same, even though they're not. And yep. we do have to take that step back and say, yeah, is this is this something that is true or false? And that's going to really yep. separate them. So if- in and you, an may idea- never,
2: you may never know actually if something is true or false, but theoretically it will be either true or false and we will have a degree of belief and we make our decisions based on a degree of belief about the truth or falsity. And that degree of belief is actually all that a probability is. Some people get very mistaken views about what a probability is. It's just a degree of belief supported by a certain amount of evidence.
1: Mm, That's a good way of thinking of it, actually. Um, If we had an ideal world where uh, we went and taught all of the 11-year-olds in the world how to make these decisions and critically analyze those decisions, what kind of future could our generations live in?
2: Um, Pretty simple. Better, better, better situations. I mean, the the goal here is better lives, better lives for everybody. We're not making mistakes in terms of choosing the options that we think will do better for us, however we define better. So better lives would be my answer.
1: It's really difficult if you're talking about what you want because we're going to have things that we want individually and some people are going to be altruistic, but some people are definitely not going to be. So even if people are making critical decisions, they can still be selfish.
2: Yes, um, you can. I mean, decision, good decision-making is agnostic. It can be used for good or evil. But that comes down to the value side, and that's not more negotiation than decision-making. It's how, as a society... Do we decide between some people want this, some people want that, what's the compromise? Then the decision-making tells you how to get there.
1: I understand. So that's a lot to think of, think about. And I think that I'm definitely going to be able to go away and say, why is this important? Why is this important? Next time I get asked to stay late at work, why is this important? Yes. (laughs) annoy a lot of people with that one. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Steve. Oh,
0: sure. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com by the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code that you will also find in the description. Of course, you can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link in the description too. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's interview was hosted by Dr. Deborah Davis. Thank you.